Welcome. This is the uh, School of Theology. We're studying together the Doctrine of Man, our first night together. It's good to see you and a joy to be with you. I'm Duncan Rankin, and Bob Stacy is here as well, and we have uh, uh, Fred Greco Esquire out in the hallway greeting uh, folks who are coming in. Let's open up with prayer. Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather uh, together and study the truths of your word, that we can have our minds filled and our hearts warmed, indeed by the work of your Holy Spirit, as you teach us uh, from the word of God and you teach us about uh, the world that you have created. We particularly ask, O Lord, that you would help us to better understand ourselves, that we might know uh, humankind, men and women, as you have created them, Indeed, that we might understand them as you have been in relationship uh, with our fathers and mothers before us. And indeed, O Lord, that we might most of all appreciate your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, uh, the man Jesus Christ, having come into the world to save sinners like us. We ask that as we think your thoughts after you, and as we see the grand sweep of uh, redemptive history that you're unfolding, that we indeed might be drawn closer to our Lord Jesus and to you through him, and that we might live and serve you in this life as we walk towards that celestial city to come, even the new heavens and new earth that you promise, where we will dwell and without interruption be able to give you praise and glory and adoration, uh, unmolested of heart and life, uh, fully reflecting the image of Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have a we have a few housekeeping matters to take care of. Welcome, welcome. Come on in. I see we have the youngest member of the class. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, we have syllabi up front. Does anybody? Uh, Ed, can you yeah. hand out just pass those around if anybody needs a copy? And then we also have, uh, uh, as we do every semester, our. Um, our core text that we use, and uh, the textbook this time is J.I. Packer's book, Concise Theology. It's been on a suggested reading list before, uh, but we have copies of it, and, and as we typically do, we offer them for $5 each. Uh, just slip a fiver in the, uh, uh, in the uh, multicolored red uh, bucket there. And, uh, and take a copy. If those run out and you need some more, let me know and I'll, I'll order some. What I'd like to do is introduce the course tonight and then begin uh, by framing our study of uh, the doctrine of man or anthropology together. Uh, we follow uh, a pattern of uh, two Wednesdays a month. In previous times, it's been the second and fourth, but because of scheduling in the wider church life, uh, for this semester, it's the first and third Wednesdays. And we try to start at 7, and we uh, end at uh, 8.30. We take a break in the middle for a little coffee and, and water. We have coffee in both kinds there if you don't want to have to stay up too late tonight. We will be looking together at the doctrine of man very broadly considered. So we'll be talking about the creation of our first father and mother and moving on to uh, the state in which man was created by God as innocent in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Then we will see the covenant of works come, where God himself lays down requirements for our first father and our first mother, and uh, that modifies their life and their situation. 
Uh, they then uh, further are responsible for modifying their own situation by falling to sin and misery. And so we have to look at that historic fall, uh, at the sin that so easily entangles us and the misery that associates it in our, in our lives as we think about man has fallen. Uh, we also then sort of look over the hill. I, I know in, in Katy, Texas, in the front, in the uh, in the flat rice fields of Katy, Texas, it's difficult to think about seeing over the hill. But uh, we'll have to we'll have to imagine seeing over the hill and catching a glimpse of man uh, and woman of of mankind as redeemed in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We don't have a lot of rules. Uh, in the class, uh, the church sponsors uh, the School of Theology, and we're delighted to have you take part. Uh, we use a lecture style on the on the front end of our time together, take a break, and then have more of a discussion and emphasis on world and life use centered around our text and related mm-hmm. topics in the second half. Um, the course requirements are we ask you to read uh, the core theological text, and, and those uh, suggested assignments will come along and along. Uh, as we do our weeks together. And then we ask you to please attend uh, unless you're providentially hindered. Uh, We do have uh, some interest that's been expressed in having a nursery of some sort. We've tried that at different times, and if you're interested in that, if that would be a help to you or anybody else that you know, let me know and we'll see uh, what we can arrange. Uh, Further on in the syllabus, on pages 4 and 5 and spilling over onto page 6, are a number of different uh, texts that we suggest as textbooks for the course more broadly. Obviously, the Bible and the core text. Some we've looked at together. Um, uh, We have uh, had some discussion around Calvin's Institutes before, for example, in the course. Uh, But there's an uh, an annotated bibliography here uh, that gives you a little encouragement, uh, maybe in reading a bit more broadly, and then suggestions on where to find uh, those good works that in part, cover the doctrine of anthropology broadly considered. And then and then we have a bibliography of general systematic theology and then specifically helpful works on the doctrine of man. Some of those I've brought with me uh, over here on the table for you to have a look at. Let me plug a couple of these. Um, I, have, I have brought the old standby, Calvin's uh, Institutes. That's up here and I'll read uh, from it for you in just a moment. Uh, in the In the period after Calvin, immediately after Calvin, Francis Turretin's Institutes of Atlantic Theology is a wonderful text. Very full. Uh, You know, in systematic theology texts, the smaller the print, the more meaty uh, the content. And so I I encourage you at least to poke your nose into it. It's not nearly as scary as it looks, but it's a very full and helpful text. And if you want something to lower your blood pressure... um, Villamus of Reckles, the Christian's reasonable service is here. And I challenge you at the break to turn randomly to any page and read. And I think your soul will be encouraged. This was the most popular, um, in the Netherlands, uh, the most popular Dutch systematic uh, theology, the most uh, popular Dutch Puritan theology, kept in print for generations. Uh, It has been painstakingly translated into modern English by some uh, dear expatriate uh, uh, in exile Dutchmen in uh, Canada. And they have done a wonderful job in translating this. As a matter of fact, they're so committed to the text, uh, not only did they uh, sponsor it to be translated and then printed, they now give it away for free on the Internet. So you can go and download a PDF of it. Um, 
You need a little space on your hard drive. It's four volumes, but uh, I would encourage you to grab that. It's a wonderful text. Very warm and engaging, not highly technical in an intimidating sense. And he just, uh, uh, it has a sermonic style. He'll stop and say, oh, reader, can't you see the beauties of this particular biblical truth for your Christian life? Can't you feel the difference that it will make in your daily walk? He does a good job of that. And I, I commend you, uh, commend him to you. I, I do always try to tell folks, though, uh, he is a comely-looking fellow. <laughs> and uh, it, will, uh, it will encourage you every time you look in the mirror at yourself. <laughs> we have a few other works. I've got Burkhoff here. One that I haven't showed you in previous times is a wonderful InterVarsity standby. T.C. Hammond, uh, David Wright updated it in Understanding Be Men. It's a very short, um, easily accessible summary of Christian doctrine. And uh, InterVarsity through the years has kept it in print. And uh, I would commend it to you. A lot of college students have had, have had help in uh, understanding the Christian faith, reading that volume. I did bring John Frames. Uh, this is his latest uh, door holder. Uh, you can uh, get his copy of uh, Systematic Theology, Introduction to Christian Belief. And you know, if that's an introduction, I'll eat my hat. But uh, anyway, uh, it's a wonderful volume. But I wanted to particularly uh, commend to you a Puritan Theology, Doctrine for Life by Beeky and Jones. Uh, this also has come out recently. Uh, Reformation Heritage has put it out. Uh, up in um, up in Grand Rapids, and it is a wonderful summary of Christian faith and, and uh, interwoven a bit in life as well. Uh, finally, there's a there's one particular work that I, I really almost tried to uh, see if we couldn't get as a textbook. Um, uh, they supposedly are putting out a whole series of these. Welcome, Hi. glad to have you. Welcome. Uh, this is John Calvin, 1509 to 1564. In graphic format, and if you if you didn't know it could be done, it's John Calvin cartoons. It is absolutely wonderful. Um, you get uh, action poses by John Calvin, the thoughtful Calvin, the pointing Calvin. Uh, you see him interacting with uh, all manner of life. There are even some nice uh, uh, pictures and history on uh, uh, Geneva and the Academy and uh, the Cathedral of Saint-Pierre, St. Peter's, uh, and some of the other major figures that were present. But uh, uh, anyway, you might have a look at that. We could have uh, little short devotional, quote-unquote, readings from Calvin's comics. They, they didn't write that just sort of as a, uh, you know, sort of a commentary on what they believe the, the, the modern intellect is compared to when Calvin was, was living. I think it's giving us a glimpse into the, um, well, how should we say it? Is, it? is it the collegiate market, Bob? Is that what you would say? I'm afraid so. You're afraid that's what it is. I'm afraid that's where we are. All right. Well, let me, uh, let me open tonight by reading from Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. Then he goes on to say, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They are much more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The psalmist goes on to question uh, the sinfulness of man and his need of salvation. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of of hidden faults, he says, and he ends by affirming the Lord is my rock and my redeemer. In this particular topic of the doctrine of man, we come facing not only the glories of the creation of our first father Adam and our first mother Eve, and and, uh, rejoicing and exalting God as our creator as we take a nice tour of the Garden of Eden and see something of the fellowship that they had with our heavenly father, but we also face that fat, that sad and tragic day on which our first parents rebelled against the Lord. And in so doing, in listening to the devil rather than to him, they plunged themselves and us into a state of, of sin and of misery. It's a, the rest of the Bible after, you know, the first few verses of John, or of uh, Genesis chapter 3, it's, uh, it's pretty tragic. Uh, in one of its major strands. It's the unfolding of sin and misery, the growth of misery as it circles and engulfs the earth, Uh, the tragedy of brokenness among humankind and a continuing rebellion against God in contrast with the blessing and the grace of God, uh, which uh, ends up giving us the delight of the story and the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In this particular study this semester, we trace that downfall, the wonderful creation, man as the, as the crown of creation, and then we see the downfall of man, and uh, we sift through the rubble. Uh, not of 9-11, uh, but we sift through something of the rubble of fall, the fallen humankind, and we see uh, the, the signs, the the providential markers, and also the declaration of God Almighty in His promise uh, that He has set His love even upon sinners like us, and He sent His Son into the world to save sinners like us. And so it's the story of man uh, that we're studying together. Now, let me just up front say that I'm using man in the good old-fashioned Elizabethan sense, in the broadest kind of meaning. I'm, I'm not being gender-specific when I use that. If I try to get gender-specific, then I'll make sure I tap on the, on the podium twice or something. I presume I'm not being gender-specific. If I need to be, I will. It, it's a broad-brush term not meant to insult anyone, quite the opposite. The fact that God has made us in His image, that He's made us male and female, uh, and that uh, we reflect something of His glory. Even in our brokenness, there still is evidence there. There's still a reality of the image of God in man uh, worth studying and paying some attention to. And that our Lord sets His love upon the will of the Father and His love upon us even so much that He does not, um, he does not push back the assignment of embracing human flesh, of taking flesh on Himself, since the children share in flesh and blood, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews tells us, he himself likewise partook of the same. And that kind of, of drama in redemptive history 
is really uh, the major turning point. When the triune God purposes, and we begin to see that purpose as He takes Son of God, takes on flesh and dwells among us, we hear the good news of the Gospel more clearly uh, than even the promises before. And we see its fulfillment in Christ. So, so this class is not all bad news. It begins on a very high note, on a high note, and then, uh, and then it gets a little depressing for the first, uh, well, shall I say, third. And then we begin seeing um, uh, the plan of redemption begin to unfold and the blessings that come. So it's anthropology, uh, the study of man, uh, generally speaking, and that includes creation, uh, innocence, fall, uh, redemption and glory. So we'll be touching on these different topics. Now, before we start talking about uh, anything particular in all of this, we have to make sure we calibrate ourselves. And it's important to do that in every class. We want to make sure that we don't forget the fact that we do not study in a vacuum. But rather, we come to study God as creatures, as men and women and boys and girls made in His image, And so we must recognize that to have knowledge of God, we must come rightly before Him uh, with piety and with humility. John Calvin, in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, emphasizes this fact for us. He he particularly uh, notes and emphasizes for us that that, uh, God is the one who has made us, that He is the fount of all good, and that we must seek nothing good elsewhere other than in Him. And so as we study man, we don't study man in isolation. We study man in relationship to God and as the creature to God. God uh, not only sustains the universe by His boundless might, regulates it by His wisdom, preserves it by His goodness, and rules it, uh, particularly ruling mankind by His righteousness and judgment, bearing with it in His mercy, watching it by His protection, but also that no drop will be found either of wisdom and light or of righteousness or power of rectitude or genuine truth which does not flow from Him and from which He is not caused. Uh, So whenever we come to study about man, we are not putting man under a microscope in isolation from God. Quite the opposite. We study man in his relationship to God. And we want to make sure that our study of all of theology, particularly anthropology, is bounded by this fact. So we must come in humility, in reverence to God. We come with a heart and a mind searching out to worship Him. One of the most dangerous things you can do in your life is purpose to study God with no piety with no reference to God, with no humility before Him. That becomes an exercise in uh, self-aggrandizing arrogance. It's most dangerous. And it becomes an occasion on which we gain certain kinds and amounts of knowledge that we then misuse because it's not being used for God's glory. It becomes used for the control and manipulation of men uh, one over another. And so we come before the Lord humbly as we seek to study him and even uh, the doctrine of man that he teaches us. B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, uh, particularly in his article, The Religious Life of Theological Students, emphasizes the fact that we don't just need uh, uh, nice chaps about town 
who go and study theology and fill our pulpits and fill our lecterns teaching. We need people uh, who love the Lord and are humble before Him, that uh, have a real, true Christian or religious life of heart and mind. Uh, that's who needs to be studying theology and then teaching others. And so as we begin the class, it's just another opportunity for all of us to stop and to humbly uh, check our hearts before the Lord. Where do we stand before Him? Are we coming humbly to learn from Him and to know Him better and to serve Him better? Are we coming just to puff up our own minds? And I have uh, good reason to hope uh, or the good answer to that from each one of you. Also, we have to place anthropology in its larger context theologically. Um, the study of man is not all there is to systematic theology. Now, let me pause and take a deep breath with you and say, in some theological schools today, all they study is anthropology. They don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. They They are fairly unsure about whether God exists, and they're quite confident that they can't know much of what he is like. Who this Jesus is and what he does for us, that's a topic which is highly debated in their halls. And what the concept of salvation is, is another troubling thing for them. The one thing they're quite sure of is that it's not that some people got it and other people ain't. As far as the church goes, in many places it's patterned more after the Kiwanis Club than it is after anything in the scriptures or that Jesus taught. And then finally, with regard to eschatology, uh, they're, they're not quite sure what to think uh, the end times are or if there really are end times. Maybe things just continue rolling on as they have been forevermore. So the one thing that they study in great earnest and with great intensity is anthropology. Strangely, there's an explosion of material in this area uh, in uh, uh, mainline and liberal theological circles because they're in effect studying themselves. And it's a quite a dangerous endeavor. Yes. But in studying anthropology, though, they're sort of taking a humanistic evolutionary viewpoint about the origins of man and which is totally different than what, you know, the other It is, it is uh, if I can say it uh, bluntly, it is unthinkable that someone in a mainline theological seminary would hold to a historic Adam and Eve and a six-day creation. Is that fair, Bob? I don't, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to sort of uh, wind everyone up, but you just have to understand... Um, it's chalk and cheese. It's Mars and Venus. You know, it's uh, uh, it's Mercury and Pluto, two ends of the spectrum. And uh, there just is not uh, the same kind of understanding of history um, uh, or of, uh, of the Bible, you know, in its basic outline teaching. So, yes, that, that's important to notice. Uh, so, so anthropology is important, but it's important to place it within its classical context. That is... Anthropology is what you study after studying God and the Trinity. Anthropology is what you study after you first studied Revelation, uh, particularly special revelation, the Bible, uh, the inscripturated form of special revelation. And then you, you see what the Bible teaches about the nature of God and, and particularly his 
his triune uh, nature, and then we begin studying man made in his image. So there's there's scripture and God before the study of anthropology. And then after it is the study of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the person and the work of Christ would be studied, and the salvation that he accomplishes by the Holy Spirit, and then uh, the church and last things. So anthropology is is about a third of the way through the, the theological loci, or theological topics or places classically conceived. And Christian theology has been written in that way, in that outline, uh, since the beginning. Um, All of the topics are interconnected. Christology, uh, the person of Christ, since he's the God-man, you have to know about deity and you have to know about humanity. And you can't really have a good conversation in any meaningful depth about who Jesus is if uh, you don't have some understanding of human nature. And what happens is people will talk about Jesus, and they will implicitly have some understanding of human nature. It may be right, biblical, or it may be wrong. And it's good to to kind of pull that out and examine it uh, as a topic. That can help us. There there is a unique loci, um, a a central point, that more thoroughly connects everything uh, in in theology and anything else. And I would submit to you that's Christology. The God-man, the one who is the the mediator between God and man, that Jesus Christ our Lord uh, is that center point. And so we study the doctrine of man with a particular heightened interest, not because we're so great, but because he's so great. It's a great test point. Whatever, whatever conclusions we're tempted to draw about the doctrine of man, uh, what the nature of man is, what the image of God uh, in man is, even about sin, and the damage that it does to human nature, it's good to go and by comparison or contrast study that through the lens of Christ. Obviously, he's not a sinner, but he is the sinless, uh, the spotless lamb. He's the sinless one, uh, the one mediator between God and man. So what the proper definition of the humanity is has to fit with him. Um, sometimes you hear people say, to err is human. And I am here to tell you, based upon God's word, to err is not human. Because Jesus never erred. And he's more, he was more human than any of us are. We're subhuman at times in our, in our rebellion and sin and misery. And he's perfectly human and even more so than that. Uh, and so we have to remember the uniqueness of the Trinity and the incarnation and all of Christian theology. But the Bible is foundational for us because we're finite creatures. We don't know all things. I've told the congregation many times, um, we have raised our children making sure that they understand that God knows all things and mom and dad know almost all things. And uh, so we go back to the touchstone of the word, we go back to the word of God, to the scriptures, and that's where our ideas about anthropology are going to ultimately come from. That that doesn't mean that we don't, um, that we don't uh, reconcile them and harmonize our understanding in light of also God's revelation from the world. We read from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And and so the created order is something we also study uh, from the Bible. uh, I don't learn about um, uh, the internal organ system of man, for example. Um, I guess uh, I learn about uh, the heart and bowels, and a few other things are mentioned, but uh, I don't recall uh, any Hebrew for the spoon. Uh, 
you know, uh, some detailed medical examination of man. So there, there are things about anthropology that we can learn uh, by studying creation, but at the end of the day, uh, the only uh, rule of faith and practice about our understanding of man comes from the Bible. Um, we are going to look together at man unfolding in redemptive history. Uh, and this is a little tricky, but it's important for you to have it in your mind. You, the person that you meet every morning in the mirror, you are not the ultimate definition of what humanity is. Okay? At the end of the day, our first father and our first mother as created is where we start. And we're going to have to think biblically and theologically about Adam and Eve before the fall and what they were like and the potential and the the abilities and the attributes and the strengths that they had and vulnerabilities. And then secondly, we see them created as rational creatures and then having layered on top of that uh, God's requirement of the covenant of works. So there was a period of time in which man was created and then God declares the covenant of works to him. Now, I'm not going to be able to draw an answer for you as to how long it took God to lay down the covenant of works for Adam. That's not really, at the time of that's not the issue. The issue is, is that there's man created as a rational creature and then created as a rational creature who is now, or at that point, under the covenant of works. And then, failing the covenant of works, man uh, becomes a fallen creature. And he has dysfunction in his life. And the Lord, in his mercy through the covenant of grace, uh, then sends a redeemer, and we see man is redeemed. And then finally, uh, we catch a glimpse of man glorified. Uh, As he is uh, in his glory, uh, we shall uh, also partake. Uh, As we study anthropology, though, we need to be energized by the fact that this is a really big and important topic. I will confess to you that in historic Christian systematic theology, I'm not convinced that anthropology has had as much of a careful emphasis and fine-tuning as it ought to. Uh, For example, in the entire Confession of Faith, you really only have one paragraph that uh, directly deals with uh, God's making of man and the nature of man. Uh, In the Confession of Faith, chapter 4 and section 2, it says, After God had made all other creatures... He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, and do with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image. And having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so there's that description of man as a creature, and then of the covenant of works that's mentioned here. And uh, uh, so that's the, that's the confession's treatment of the topic of anthropology, which is not as full as one might wish. But let me just, let me just take you on a quick tour as we come to our break. Um, in academia, the social sciences have been all the rage for um, 20 years or more. Yeah, I think we're getting old, Bob, maybe 50 years now. I mean, this kind of thing has been in control. People, in the, people out in society, I think, generally have the idea that the hard sciences are in control, but that's not the case in academia anymore. Uh, and particularly genetic studies, on the, on the more hard science side, genetic studies have really captured the mind of the academy, and people love to draw conclusions about human behavior and morality or <coughs> the lack 
for any need of morality. Uh, based upon uh, genetic studies and the supposed hard coding, you know, if our if our genes sort of are open structured to some kind of behavior, then boy, we all uh, feel free about doing it. Uh, and the whole issue of whether uh, we have been damaged uh, by sin, uh, whether we're less than we should be, uh, whether we have uh, real choice, the human agency established by God, that, that doesn't seem to, to really press on the academy's mind so much. In theological studies, um, uh, particularly feminist studies, liberation theology studies of one sort or another have been very big uh, in the last several decades. Um, I can remember the time when I, I ordered from um, Harper Row from the West Coast, I ordered a copy of a homosexual theology work, trying to argue that Jesus was the archetype gay male. And uh, this thing came in the mail and hit the seminary, and I opened it up, and one of my colleagues was standing next to me, and he said, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe that you bought that. And I said, well, I have to know what the end is up to. And uh, as I read... You know, as I read that and all the drawing from Foucault and others, I, I can remember thinking, this is crazy. There is, you know, that, that um, conservative southern instinct in me said, there's no way this kind of thing is going to catch on. And boy, has it is all the rage today. And so uh, radical feminist studies or radical homosexual studies, uh, the reading of life and the reading of that kind of lifestyle, behavior, and perspective onto Christian theology... That is all the rage in mainline theological circles today. And we see some reflection of it uh, even in uh, uh, what have traditionally been evangelical publishers. The IVP Contours in Christian Theology series, I, I list in the syllabus their volume on, on uh, anthropology, on, on humankind. But you know, uh, I, would, I would say it's the weakest of all the volumes uh, that's in that series. And that's a, a weakness generally in evangelicalism in this area. In popular culture, we have all of the beginning of life issues and end of life issues, questions about abortion, questions about genetic manipulation. Um, they had a picture on the BBC uh, World Service app, or um, uh, yeah, BBC uh, iPhone app recently of uh, uh, a girl that's, that's they've been keeping up with along with several thousand others in, or a hundred others in Britain who have three genetic parents. Uh, written for a, or there's a short period of time in which uh, a certain uh, set of genetic manipulation techniques were used in uh, in vitro fertilization and the genetic code of, of a mother and uh, a father and uh, two mothers were used in the in the creation or in the in the uh, manipulation and, and eventual uh, growth and birth of this girl in the studies and and we really we really don't know what medical damage and vulnerabilities are going to be for the future for these children. Uh, beginning of life issues, all is in the area of anthropology. End of life issues, like euthanasia, uh, that's all in the area of anthropology. Uh, their hardware and software issues are genetic control versus personal freedom, uh, the difference between uh, the mind that you have and the physical brain that you have comes in anthropology. Uh, body versus soul, particularly body versus sexuality, homosexuality, gender issues, gay and Plural marriage now? I, I just, well, I'm, a, I'm, I'm in the wrong century. I just, I cannot understand the logic of where this train is headed uh, with the, the destruction of traditional marriage and the rise of really something that even 
the barbarians would not have conceived of uh, that is being cooked up in our country. Artificial intelligence. Um, did you see recently in the last week that uh, the Japanese are beginning to mass produce in China humanoid robots? Uh, they have uh, a lack of growth in their country, an explosion of older folks with a need for care, and so they, they are driven uh, by a desire to use technology to overcome this manpower shortage. And uh, I've seen a few movies, and I, I know where that's going to end up. Uh, we have parent-child issues in popular culture. Uh, child abuse, for example, uh, as being um, accepted in some cultures and tolerated in some subcultures. And, and you get all this strange political correctness. In Rotterdam in Britain, uh, you had Islamic, um, horrific and callous rape of children. Um, and they would send taxis to pick them up in order to mistreat them. And uh, the authorities knew of it and were doing nothing. Because, of course, it was happening in Islamic subculture, and they didn't want to cross that boundary and be viewed as persecuting uh, a religious uh, minority in their country. Crazy sorts of thoughts. But even in evangelical circles, we have, and reform circles, questions of power and control. Is the, is the power of a parent absolute? Do you have a right to kill your child? Do you have a right to withhold medical care from them? What, when does a parental right end and a, and a child's right begin? These are all questions of anthropology. Even environmental issues rightly can be viewed as, as falling under this because man is the delegated head of creation and, and man has a responsibility to, to uh, be steward over the created order. Animal rights, climate change, green politics, all of these things uh, are related back uh, to anthropology. And then uh, finally, um, in the wider visible church, uh, you have a very extreme form of thinking in these areas, and the evangelical church seems to lag in this, like it does in so many other areas, about 50 to 100 years behind. Our folks kind of catch on late on how to cope with these things. So uh, uh, we need to think about how the church is different than the world in this area, and how the church is supposed to be different than the world, rather than just how things are. But this is a a painting of kind of where we're headed. Let's take a break, and then uh, uh, we will uh, gather back. Maybe do some of the things this one does, and so maybe there are some alternatives out there which are which are good also. But but uh, just in terms of sort of a sort of a systematic march through topics that should be of great importance to anybody who takes their theology seriously. Uh, Packer does a great job of just sort of lining them up and knocking them all down. Uh, you have to look to the table of contents with me. Uh, you'll see how it's organized. You know, I can think of books that sort of divide, divide into chapters and what sort of take a topic. It's a couple of pages just sort of uh, explaining that topic. Now, okay, it's only a couple of pages, so it could, you know, each one of these topics, in a sense, could be a book unto itself. Uh, but he hasn't done that for us. He's really kind of introducing us to all of sort of the major topics of Christian theology. And so uh, we'll spend the semester, and uh, I'm going to be careful here. I, I didn't discuss this part. Uh, this, this might take us two semesters, frankly, to work our way all the way through this, to give proper attention to the various topics that are here. Uh, we'll get started here tonight, but uh, as you'll see as you read, it's uh, it's very readable. I think you'll enjoy reading it. Patrick is a very elegant author. Uh, 
he's he's contemporary, right? So I don't know how you feel about some of the older sources, but sometimes those challenge us. But uh, Packer is very readable. Uh, it's written for people like you and me. It's not you know these, you don't have to be a seminary professor to, to read and enjoy this book. Uh, in fact, if you're a seminary professor, you probably won't like this book. Actually, most of you are not seminary professors, so this should not be a problem. So we're going to work through a few of these topics tonight, and just to sort of whet your appetite, and hopefully then um, uh, and that will help inspire you to, to work your way through the rest of the book. You had a question? I, I, for a long time now, I've, I've had a question about Packer himself. I understand he's an Episcopalian, is that correct? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? No. Says, oh. Says, oh, that's what I was told. He says in the preface he's a Reformed Anglican, whatever that he's is. He's an Anglican, yes. Well, it's kind of like a Reformed Baptist or a Reformed yeah, Presbyterian. You could be Reformed in almost anything. Yeah. Or Reformed too. But I'm trying to figure out how he can stay an Anglican mm-hmm. with his views and in the church yeah. as it is today. Yeah, no, that's a... That's a good question. Um, there's a difference, an important difference, I think. It's a, it's a big brush about the paint with. I think it's an important difference between Anglican and Episcopalian. They, they might seem very similar. Uh, but I think I think what you're getting at, the Episcopalian church is way far gone. Uh, I, would, I, I think any decent Christian, I think would have a hard time sort of, you know, planting your flag there. Uh, that's a mission field, in a sense. The Anglican Church is not always like that. Sometimes it is, but I, I at least have known excellent Anglican congregations where the word is preached faithfully. Uh, I not, I don't know, is that his congregation? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I suppose so, but I don't know. Uh, but at least that seems to me possible that one could be Reformed, Evangelical, and an Anglican. There's actually a number of Episcopalian congregations that have withdrawn from the Episcopalian yeah, Church. Yeah. The line I know with the South African. I know, oddly enough, right, they're turning to African churches. Yeah. 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 Because they're faithful still, which is remarkable. That's, that's why it is kind of a mission field, right? And who are the missionaries to the Episcopalians? It's often it's the African bishops who are the, the missionaries. So that's a good thing. Let's, uh, if you turn to page three. Packer starts, I think, in probably just about the right spot. He starts with Revelation, right? We want to talk about uh, Christian theology. We probably ought to, we ought to go to the source, right? Uh, and he says the source, in fact, is Scripture. Right there in the opening, let's take a look at the opening sentence together, in fact. It says, Christianity is the true worship and service of the true God, humanity's creator and redeemer. It's a good sentence. Look at this next one, then. It is a religion that rests on Revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had God not had not God first acted to make himself known. So he um, waits until the second sentence maybe to say something controversial. Look at that second. Let's, can we look at it one more time? I, I, and I want you to tell me, is this even true? It is a religion, Christianity, that rests on revelation. Nobody would know the truth about God or be able to relate to him in a personal way had God had not God first acted to make himself known. Is that true? Well, it depends on your translation of, of our interpretation of what God did. God put it in our hearts to know his law and who he was. Sure, yeah. I think what he's talking about, though, is God making himself 
known to Adam and Eve and, and so on. Exactly, yeah. I think it's more than just sort of, you know, the... Uh, you're right. I think it, it's, it's bigger than just sort of God transforming our heart post-fall so that we could respond to him. And even yet, our finite man, mind cannot even begin to grasp... I think this is a big part of it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How does God reveal himself to us? Kind of when we try and define him, we put him in a box. Yeah, the moment we start trying to, to, to define him, you're right. We, and God in his graciousness, he understands that, right? So, uh, I know you've all, as you read through the Bible, sometimes we'll come across those sentences or phrases that seem kind of odd. It speaks of, you know, God, um, you know, uh, you know it, it speaks of in anthropomorphic terms, Right? Um, about you know losing patience or getting angry or but those are not necessarily conditions God really experiences. They're 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 ways to help us understand who He is. Understanding the limits of our knowledge, God reveals Himself in Scripture in such a way that that we can understand it. It's not comprehensive because really, can we comprehensively understand God in all of His infinite detail? We would have to have God's mind in order to be able to do that, and we don't. At least I don't. Let me ask you this, even if you haven't, I'm, I assume, in fact, that you haven't read this section of the book yet. Um, where does, where do the scriptures come from? No bad answer to this question. I, yeah, I, I'll presuppose any Inspired by a holy God. Yeah, so there's, a, I think, a, a perfectly accurate answer would be, well, they come from God, right? They, they are inspired by him. You know what the word inspire means? Yeah, it literally has to do with breathing. Think of the term respiration, like, you know, breathing in and out. Uh, in fact, doesn't the scripture itself even say this about itself? Remember about uh, Paul in 2 Timothy, all scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed. Yeah. yeah. And, and literally, if you, if, you, if you read the Greek, it's literally inspired, breathed in, right? So it's the same word, right? We just translate it in that way to help us kind of, kind of wrap our, our English minds around the notion of what God is doing. He's literally breathing his his uh, his word to us. Does anybody have a Bible handy? Could somebody? I bet some of you do. Uh, could somebody find Psalm thirty three for us? We'll see who is the most holy person in the room. <laughs> some of you aren't even trying. I can tell you. Yeah, I know. What do you want? Thirty three six. I got it. Good. Uh-huh. <laughs> Either you or Steve Jobs is the most holy person. Uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So, again, that term breath, inspiration, right? So, uh, once you see what we're saying here, we just said, along with Paul, that all scripture is God breathed. Steve, could you read that one more time? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. So, as God populates his creation, as, as he forms it, how does he do it? Through his breath. So, what is breathed out by God? Everything. Everything from scripture to everything else. That's, I, I don't know about you, but think about that for a moment. Okay, so we often talk about the inspiration of the scriptures, right? That's, okay, we, we're all on the same page. But you understand creation itself is in that sense inspired. Quite literally inspired, breathed out by God. Well, we say that before we were, 
There was nothing, and he spoke it into existence. Yeah. So, you don't have to be a medical doctor to figure out how do you speak. You must force air out of yourself in order to make sounds, right? I don't think it's an accident. I think that's exactly... God means what he says in his Bible. When, he, when we talk about the speaking creation into existence, or in Psalm 33, breathing it into existence, those are really two ways of describing the same sort of thing. If you really, I mean, we don't have to go into it in great detail, but if you really start to unpack some of this and start really thinking it through, uh, we think of what Christ as the Word made flesh, right? And, and again, what are words? Words are, you know, those things which we speak. And this idea of sort of breathing life and breathing himself into creation, in a sense, isn't Jesus himself the ultimate iteration of that, the, the ultimate manifestation of that? But I, the only reason I bring all this up is simply to, to point out to you. Again, you guys have heard this before. I'm not repeating anything that you haven't heard before. Uh, when we think of how God reveals himself, we usually think of two categories, right? And some of you, in past classes, I know we've talked about this, so some of you might even remember, we speak of general revelation and special revelation, right? Is it, can anybody, just off the top of your head, what's the distinction between those two things? Special revelation. Special revelation is what's given in the Bible by that verbal communication, yeah. whereas yeah. general revelation is what we can know just from living in the created order. That's right. And, and plenty of examples of, of understanding both of those throughout Scripture, right? We reference the, the line by Paul where he talks about the inspiration of the written word, right? And other places throughout Scripture talk about it in, in that special sense. Uh, Paul also is a great source for understanding that general revelation, that God reveals himself through what he has done, right? Uh, I think I Classic case, of course, is in Romans chapter 1. That's one of my favorite sections of the whole, whole Bible, in fact, as Paul kind of describes. And you can look around, right? Look around at what God has done, and you can see, you can begin to understand something of who he is. I'm going to skip. We'll come back to it in a moment. But in these opening sections, uh, the third section is actually called, here, look, general revelation. Uh, these things actually, believe it or not, kind of go together. Look what Packer says here in the uh, bottom page 9, the second paragraph. It says, God actively discloses these aspects of himself to all human beings. Notice that, to all human beings. So that in every case, failure to thank and serve the creator in righteousness is sin against knowledge. And denials of having received this knowledge should be t- not be taken seriously. What's he saying there? What, think about that for a moment. What has Packer just suggested? You You can never say, well, I didn't know. Because all of creation itself speaks at least that. Now, again, sort of implied by what we talked about earlier. Does general revelation, creation, tell us everything we need to know about God? It it clearly doesn't. In fact, that is why. Why does God even give us special revelation? Couldn't he just say, that creation, there you go. I mean, he's God, he could, right? But, But there's more to the message, right? There's the special revelation... General revelation, though, what does it tell us? It tells us something about God's character, and it tells us of our need. What's our obligation? Right? We should be obeying. We're not, and that's our fault and our problem. But we can't say we didn't know. That puts everybody on the hook, doesn't it? Uh, when Dr. Rankin got started, he... Uh, used a great section of, of the Bible to help us understand this as well. You've read Psalm 19 before, plus you just had 
for right here this evening. What does Psalm 19 say about God's work in creation? It's knowledge. Yeah. There's, there's some beautiful images there. This is an aside. Does the heavens declare the glory of God? Literally, right? They declare it. You can't say, I didn't know, because look, the very heavens themselves tell you. Impossible to get around that. That notion of, uh, of as, as uh, the psalmist says, of day declaring today, or speaking today, or literally, often it's translated day to day, but and we kind of think of that as like a sequence of time, you know, one day to the next day, but that's not what that means in that context. What it means is literally, you have like, almost like two people, and one of them is saying to another, one day says to another day, look what God has done. And what can that day do? And he can declare also that, look what God, you think he did something on your day, look at my day, he did something here too. So this never-ending sort of outpouring of God's revelation in his creation. And it's not historical. It is that. It's not just historical. It's always happening. It's continually declaring God's glory and our dependence upon him. Again, there's nobody who can say, gosh, I had no idea I was supposed to be that way or supposed to do that. Bob, an interesting observation. There are many people in the world who do not have the educational foundation that we do to understand the heavens. Yeah. In many cultures, I, I can tell you bright men in Africa who have no clue what the stars are. The only thing they got in school was a brief section that there is this sun with these things roaming around it. Sure. They have no clue of the magnificence of the creation. And those of us who have education, it there's no way you can avoid saying that is an incredible creation. That's right. Yeah. And it is replicated over and over and over again. It's not haphazard. That, that's right, actually. I, I like that you say that. That's, that is so important. When you think of it in those terms, right, the more you know. I mean, what is education after all, right? But learning more of God's creation. Right? The more I know, the more I'm responsible, in a sense, for understanding. How can I... Look, the simplest person on earth can still perceive that God is present in creation and, and even you know, sort of deduce their obligation to God in that sense. But if I, if I have been exposed, if I do have even greater understanding, I have been taught much, right? All that does is reinforce the lesson over and over again. An agnostic friend of mine told me a couple of weeks ago that the more he studies the human body, the more he realizes that it didn't have a chance. There had to be something else. You really, if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, right? But in, in that depth, if you're gonna say, oh, nothing special here, all random chance, just things, you are really suspending reason. I don't, I don't suppose I'm offending anybody here, right? When I say that, because we, we understand where we came from. Uh, we are the product, the creation of a God whose mind is infinite. But if you can look at that and think, ah, nothing special, just sort of, you know, this molecules bouncing off one another in a special, unusual, you know, just a different kind of pattern, you're trying really hard not to believe in God. You are struggling not to believe in God. There's a, so, 
I've done violence to the text by talking about revelation, especially special revelation, and then general revelation. Because in between those two, uh, in, in Packer's book here, he has a section that, this second, second section, on page six, called interpretation. Because it does kind of matter, right? You know, take a half a step back. When I was, uh, when I was a young lad, ages ago in graduate school, I went to the University of Virginia. It's in Charlottesville, Virginia, a beautiful town. Um, my university at the time had a department of religious studies. Now, sometime ages ago, long before I got there, they used to have a department of theology. But they stopped studying theology, right? That term could be offensive to some. Who on earth wants to study God? So instead, they started studying religion, right? So hence the, hence the change. This happened, by the way, Dr. Rankin mentioned sort of the, the, the move from sort of, uh, you know, um, so the, 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 the rise of social sciences to sort of dominate the university. Around that time is when we started abandoning terms like theology and Christianity in terms of academic discipline and started talking about more generic terms like religious studies. Religious studies is part of that social science kind of movement. And uh, that department was full of very learned individuals. I mean, this is a, this is a world-class university, and, and it, it's, its religious studies department is considered, I guess in secular terms, one of the finest academic departments of its sort in the world. So, leading scholars. And so they call it religious studies. I'm going to be honest. Um, almost all of the religion that is studied there is Christianity. There were a, a, we count on one hand the people who specialized in stuff that's not Christianity. It's a very short list. So most of these people are scholars, renowned scholars, studying some aspect of the Christian religion, right? I can tell you, at the time at least, maybe, <laughs> I was going to say maybe it's changed, but now it's not changed. Uh, but when I was there, it was certainly the case, not a one of them believed in Jesus Christ as a Savior. Huh? Absolutely not. In fact, so understand, these are people who devoted their lives, had, you know, written numerous books, had, had won prizes and awards for what? Sort of the study of religion, particularly in this case the study of Christianity. Get to my point. The study of the Bible, right? Because how do you study Christianity without looking at that particular book? And they didn't believe a word of it. There's a consequence here. That I want you to see this. They spend countless hours pouring over the same book that you and I read. I don't want to, I'm not casting any accusations. There's at least a possibility that for some of us in this room, some of those people may have spent more time, one might say, in the scripture than maybe we have. They know it intimately, but you see the problem? They don't believe any of it. How is that possible? How could it be that one could spend an entire lifetime cover to cover, back and forth again, knowing it, you might say, in an intellectual fashion. Great mind knowing it in that fashion. It doesn't have the effect it does with you and me. The same way we could study Islam or anything else. Actually, that's a, that's a perfect analogy, right? I, look, I've read the Koran. I am not moved. <laughs> but I've read it, right? Now, a Muslim will read it and see something different there. Although, I don't, I don't know. That's, they will see something different. Um, well, they see something more accurate than I do. I'm not sure that's true. Could it be that the 
person reading it was not predestined? This, this is exactly this is what Packer says. That, that unless God has done a work in your heart, you're not really going to see everything there is to see in his word. It's, after all, remember, it's, it's revelation. It must be revealed. And unless your heart is prepared, you're not, it's not revealed to you. So, ordinary people. Look, when I was, oh, man, when I started graduate school, I was, I was as foolish as the day is long. I, I don't know that I'm much better now, but I know back then I was just young and stupid. But, I had a transformational experience with Jesus Christ, and his words suddenly, which I had seen before, I had read myself, much like you had, I'm sure, in, in many cases. I'd read it before, but now it became alive to me, right? That wasn't because I got smarter. It wasn't like one day I woke up and, oh, oh, now I can read better. No, God changed my heart, right? The Holy Spirit opened my eyes, and now this same book became a real living thing to me. This, as Packer says, the, the interpretation, that must be done through the Holy Spirit working in us. Without that, it's just another book in that sense. Now, of course, you and I know it's not just another book. It's a living, powerful word. And that's what makes it, that's often, that's why it's different than the Koran, right? It's not, there will never be a time when the Holy Spirit will help you understand the Koran better, right? That's, that's not, it doesn't work that way. Um, but it is true of the, of the Word of God. So, it's not in that sense for everyone. This is, again, Packer can be a little controversial. I don't know if you caught this when you looked at it. The, so, the, the, the chapter heading is interpretation. The subheading reads, Christians can understand the Word of God. You understand what's implied there? Non-Christians can't. They might be able to read the words, put some thoughts together on those words, like you might read Shakespeare, right? And you might be, you might even be very moved by Shakespeare. Beautiful, love it, great stories. Characters are very interesting. You might feel that way about the Bible, but unless God has changed your heart, unless you are truly a believer, so much of it is just dark to you. Now, the point here, I suppose. Is that true of general revelation? You must be a Christian to understand what God has revealed through creation? No. Remember, that's for everyone. Every, and Paul it says it very explicitly in Romans, doesn't he? Everybody sees that. Nobody has an excuse, thanks to general revelation. Special revelation, though, it doesn't appeal, it doesn't occur to everyone. It's a dangerous thing in that way. But, but isn't, I mean, cre- creation is a part of general revelation, but what about attributing to the fact that God created? That's more than just general revelation, I would think. But, you mean the difference between, wow, that's really neat, and that's neat and made by God? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't know. I read Paul to be saying that it's evident that God did it. And if you say, you know, Mr. Atheist, no, he didn't, you're yeah. deceiving yourself. Right. You know better in your heart. Right. Or, or, you, or you would know better if you hadn't already hardened your heart. Exactly, yeah. I, I don't want to see anything. I don't, yeah, that's, so yeah, it's, it is clear to everyone. So even, even the hardened atheist can't say I didn't know or it wasn't clear or there was some mistake. It's, I mean, it can be deduced. I mean, it, there's no other way it could have happened. Right, right. So, yeah. you know. It's just that none so blind that says you they can, won't see. You can deny it. Exactly. Ellie, I'm going to apologize because you've heard this already. So if you want to take a you know, quick nap or you know, <laughs> break or something. But for the rest of you, 
was, I've been thinking about this recently for other reasons, and um, it's amazing to me. Have you experienced this? There are atheists who are so serious about their atheism, they write books to convince you, you, right now, don't believe in God. They will tour the country. They visited Houston. They do this so that they can go to public forums, they can have debates with Christians to prove to you, you foolish believer, there is no God. You need to know there's no God. Look, I'm an atheist, there is no God, and you need to make sure you know there's no God. They make it sort of their life's mission to make sure nobody else believes in God. Do they do that with everything they don't believe in? I have never felt the need to go and prove to friends, acquaintances, total strangers, I apologize, that unicorns don't exist. <laughs> they don't, I'm very confident, right? But I don't feel the need to... Like, look, if there's somebody in this room right now who says, oh, but they do exist, what are you talking about? Okay, I mean, okay, if that's what you... I don't see it causing a great deal of harm either way. Maybe a foolish mistake on your part, but... You're just kind of good. There could be the unicorn agnostic, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. I've never not seen all of them. I don't know. There's something about not believing in God that sort of drives them. They must get God out of everything. You see how this? It's, it's a different kind of negation. I'm sure most of them don't believe in unicorns either. But why don't they go around preaching the anti-unicorn gospel? Because frankly, there's no threat from non-existent unicorns, right? Whereas there is a genuine threat to their belief system that is the living God, right? So even the atheist has some inkling in his heart that, yeah, there really is this God. And so much so, I need to battle him. And I'll say he doesn't exist, but I need to go out there and fight this non-existent thing. It's inconsistent, right? It's, it's kind of absurd on a certain level. It doesn't stop them from doing what they do. My goal is to get through two more sections and we have ten minutes. Yeah, we'll see. On page 11, he talks, oh, this is, uh, talk about bad news. The next section is called guilt. But you have to have bad news before you have good news, right? This is really true. Uh, everything think about the term gospel literally comes, the, the, it's, it's, it literally means good news, right? I mean, that's literally what gospel means. What's good about it? What's you know? Why is this message important? And it's only important if we are first if we first know that we are sinners, right? I mean, that's why. Why are we studying the big subfield of theology called anthropology, right? The study of the nature of man. You must know man's condition before the gospel makes any sense, right? Jesus saved you from what? Unless you know the answer to that question, the gospel is not very compelling, right? I don't need to be saved. Oh, but you do desperately need to be saved. But if you don't know that, you might not be looking for it. You might not see it. So he deals with this notion of, uh, of guilt. He says, look at what he says in the subheading, the effect of general revelation. We've kind of already talked talk about this, haven't we? What does general revelation, particularly, what does it tell us? What we ought to do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it declares God, right? And there's plenty of examples in Scripture that tell us about that. The heavens declare his glory, right? So you can't say, well, God, I've never heard of this guy. Creation tells us. 
But it also tells us because he's there and because he creates, we have an, a duty to him. Right? This is, I guess, what Paul says. Nobody can say, gosh, I didn't know I was supposed to do anything differently. I just thought I could do whatever I wanted. No, no, no. General revelation itself sets that standard. You, you may never have heard the Ten Commandments. You may never, uh, but all of them have. But even if you never have read all of Deuteronomy, which is full of law, right? You still know you have an obligation. That's why he calls it the effect of general revelation. It's not the now look. Can the law of Moses? Can it convict you? Right? Can it teach you? But you are a sinner, and it certainly can. And, and, and Paul, I think, again, Paul's really good on these topics. He makes this very clear. Yeah, it's, it's the law is a kind of teacher. But your guilt is established before you ever encounter the Bible. It's, it's established by general revelation itself, God's creation. And the fact that he did it should tell you, it does tell you, you have obligations to that creator. Shame on you, me, if we don't do it. Not to be argumentative, mm-hmm. but I, I, I thought I remember reading someplace that <clears throat> before we had the law, there was no sin because we weren't aware of sin. That is in one of Paul's letters somewhere, but I think in context it might be referring to the law laid on our hearts by general revelation. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily means the law of Moses, right? So the law of Moses, you know, understand a lot of stuff happened before. Moses went up to Sinai, right? It's not as though sin didn't exist in the world before that. Now, another very real possibility is, what about the law that God gave Adam and Eve in the, in the garden? Don't eat of that tree. That's a law, right? Uh, and there's a sense in which you can say, well, you know, before that, but what was before that? You're, you're at the very beginning of creation before that, right? There's the fall of fallen angels. Which I know almost nothing about. They're not told much. Exactly, yeah. I'm interested. I'm curious. I just don't know much. One last thing. We'll, we'll wrap up here in just a moment. But um, turn to page 13 of me, uh, and he does this section. Very interesting. I've called the inward witness. How do It's a delicate question. I don't want to offend anybody. How do you know the Bible is the Word of God? I believe what it tells me. Not just any old book. It's completely <laughs> different about it. It is. It is quite different than other books. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a hard one. So there are I'll immediately acknowledge this. There are plenty of places in the scripture where the scripture itself talks about its own authority. Yeah, but you know, I could do the same thing, right? I could declare myself an authority, and the more I say it, the more it's true, right? There are, to put it a different way, there are plenty of books that declare themselves the authorities. Right? Does that make them so? So, does the scripture testify to its own authority? Absolutely. But is that, in some sense, is that proof of that authority? Only if you acknowledge its authority first, right? Well, that doesn't create a sort of chicken and egg problem, I suppose. There's a, um, one of the classes I took with Dr. Rankin, or one of the videos we watched, talked about how do we know that it is the word of God? If, if you if you think about it, if you believe in God, uh, you believe in Jesus and mm-hmm. the apostles, and you believe that the apostles wrote a part of the Bible, and then it belongs to the canon because um, the apostle has the authority. 
you know, to, to, to write, and it was breathed out by God. And so, in There's a way... There's Christ given that authority. Correct. And yeah. so, in a way, it is the Word of God, because who wrote them and who inspired them to write it? That's right. It can't be anything else, can it, in that sense? You know, there are ancient texts out there. Go ahead. The spirit within us convinces us that it's true. Yeah. At the end of the day, it, it does really hang on that. It, it goes back to what we were saying. You know, how is it that I that I can read this book, foolish kid though that I am, and it ministers to me, and this brilliant individual can spend his lifetime on it and not see even that? It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what what Packer here calls the inward witness. What's what's inside me witnessing, sort of verifying, yeah, that is, in fact, the Word of God. It is God. It is the Holy Spirit. It's the third person of the Trinity verifying, yes, I wrote that. That's real. I, I think to respond to what you know, Jim brought up, that that passage is in, is in Romans 12 through 14, mm-hmm. and it's not saying that sin was not in the world until the law. It's saying... It's obvious because death came after sin that knowledge of the law did not bring sin with it. That's right, exactly, right. So, yeah, the fact that we died before the law yeah. came around, right, right. Because they go, uh, death and sin, uh, sin and death go together. Yeah, no, you're right, yeah, yeah. So, there are ancient texts out there in the world, right? Some maybe have read Plato's Republic or Aristotle. Those are good examples because we tend, I, I know when I was in school, I did, I read those books and, ah, this is what Plato says about that subject because, look, I have a book. It says, by Plato on the front. So I know what Plato thought about this subject because here I am reading it. You understand how far away any existing manuscript is from the thing Plato actually wrote, if in fact he wrote it. Many centuries separate those two things. And much of it is fragmentary. Like a little piece here from this manuscript, another little piece here. We kind of put them together and truth be told, they don't exactly line up, so it's up to some editor to kind of squish them together so they do line up, so otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Uh You see the problem, right? We take for granted all sorts of ancient texts none of which come anywhere close to just the the reliability of the Bible itself. Another ancient text of the Bible, some of that was written a long, long time ago, but the nearness of existing texts to the time they were written, much closer. Sometimes within a matter of decades. Very close. And multiple, many copies of it. And, and not fragments, but whole texts sometimes. Right? Just in terms of a comparison, if you... If you think that Aristotle's reliable, and by the way, the only thing we have of Aristotle's writings were not written by Aristotle, they were written by his students. If you've ever taught and you've ever thought about this, um, I would not want my future reputation to be based on what my students say I said. I love my students, but don't get me wrong, but there could be a gap or two. But if you think Aristotle's reliable, the Bible is infinitely more reliable just in terms of a, of a text, of an existing body of documents. So, are there, notice too, how many authors are involved, human authors, in the Bible? 
separated by what length of time from, say, just from Moses until, uh, let's say, you know, uh, John, right? Oh, a a lot of time goes by between those two events, right? And yet, all of this writing across all this time by multiple different people, it's perfectly consistent. Nobody slipped up along the way. Look, I don't know how much you know about Mormonism, but, you know, John Smith couldn't keep it straight within his own head. He couldn't write a whole book without messing up some things, right? That's one guy writing it all at once, mostly. Here's this word, this book, written across centuries by many people, and there's not a chink in the armor anywhere. There's nothing like that in all of human writing. Those are what we sometimes call sort of internal indications of its authority. But the what's all that can be true, right? And that's interesting and motivational, and I don't know about you, it gives me great confidence. But if it weren't for the work of the Holy Spirit, even that wouldn't amount to proof that this is the Word of God. But we don't need to worry about that. We do have that, that ongoing testimony, day in and day out, of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, saying, confirming, indeed. That's why he calls it the inward witness. There is a witness confirming this, in fact, is the genuine article. It's not just any old witness. It is the Holy Spirit himself. We'll wrap up with this. Turn to page 14 with me, if you would. He says, I, I love the way he puts this as a play out of pointed out his thus God authenticates Holy Scripture to us by his word uh, to us as his word not by some mystical experience or secret information privately whispered into some inner ear not by human argument alone strong as that may be like I said there's lots of good reasons to believe this but nor the church's testimony alone impressive as this is when one looks back over 2,000 years God does it he says rather by means of the searching light and transforming power whereby Scripture evidences itself to be divine. I don't know about you, but everybody has sort of their own story, their own testimony. Right? There, are, there are as many testimonies as there are Christians. But I became introduced to Jesus Christ not because somebody witnessed to me, not because somebody handed me a pamphlet. Literally, I picked up the Bible and I read it. The Holy Spirit was, my, was the one who led me to Christ. In, in, in the literal sense of the term. So when I when I see stuff like this, when I read what Packer says here, that's that's exactly it. Now, everybody has a different sort of uh, the way you came to Christ. I'm sure is different than the way I came to Christ. That's good, right? This is this is this is, this is how God's church works. But no matter what, all of us have something like that at the base of it, right? Somewhere, however it was, however it happened for you, at some point, the Holy Spirit got involved in that situation, right? And how, how does God authenticate his holy scripture? Through his own spirit, confirming it in us. We should, we're actually three minutes over our time, and I will not try to do that in the future, but we should stop here. Any, any questions, though, any comments, anything anyone wants to add or, or ask about what we Well, I just wanted to Sorry. comment on, you know, I've interacted with several Mormons, and that's their, uh, that's their gig. I believe that the Book of Mormon is true because it's been authenticated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And that's what I want you to do, pray, pray about that. Yeah. So, I guess I, I sort of go back to the scriptures and what all the things you mentioned. Well, you know, if I compare the Book of Mormon with the scriptures. Yeah, the Book of Mormon doesn't pass the first test, let alone the last test, you know what I mean? So yeah. I guess I think of that as a, you know, in terms of building a case. Yeah. The, the Holy Spirit is important for that. I think that Mormon, you know, you have to be careful because 
Well, oh, sure, yeah. yeah the, the capacity of the human heart to deceive itself is almost limitless. Well, look at the, the Hindu religion. They look at the universe around them, the created universe, mm-hmm. and they see multiple gods yeah, many that worship. Right. They look at the same thing you and I are looking sure. at. Sure, yeah. It's only God's spirit in us that gives us the ability yeah. to understand. Yeah, that's right. And ultimately, you really need that special revelation. So they, you know, they're not entirely wrong. They look at the world and see divinity, right? They should, because there is divinity behind that. But not 700 of them, whatever it is, right? It's, it is but one. Exactly. And sometimes it's changing. Very hard to follow up on the Hindus. You, you said, you, you had uh, a comment that, that you mentioned before that about the, uh, mm, there's a text in Romans 10, mm-hmm. 17 that the faiths come from the hearing and hearing through the word That's right. of Christ. Yeah. So the for the word of Christ of God, it, the word was has been created, and for the same word comes from the faith. Uh, that's that's right. the reason that yeah. may, maybe the, the experience that you have in that university. That's right. Maybe they, they are right. very intellectual people, but if God, all all, all depends on God. That's the that's faith exactly depends. On, yeah. Uh, another thing is the. That word transforms and, and gives life, uh, new life, when we are re- re- regeneration, or we have re- regeneration. It's for that word right. that the, the words of God give us new life. That's right. And, I know what the book can do. A new, a new nature. Um, we have, all, all, all the human beings have the, the nature. But when we believe in Christ, we have another, another, uh, the, um, can I say, I read that, the word, but, yeah, there's a regeneration, two, 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 two like, right? natures, yeah, the new creation, yeah, there's a new man, right, yes. and, and again, nothing else can do that, right, it's not like, there are plenty of good books out there, interesting, can I, Teach me many things. I can become enlightened in all sorts of ways. Nothing can transform me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We should probably uh, probably wrap up here. Let's have a word of prayer before we complete that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, so much we've talked about tonight, Lord. We are grateful that you indeed reveal yourself to us. Uh, you had no such obligation, but you, you didn't leave us to our own devices. You didn't abandon us, but you loved us enough to reveal yourself. And you've loved us enough to call us unto yourself. We thank you that you have uh, made that path. And so we are grateful, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to respond appropriately, help us to uh, earnestly, eagerly serve you with all of the gifts that you give, and be uh, faithful in spreading that gospel to be the, the hands and feet of, of, uh, of your will and this kingdom of yours. We pray as we depart that you would bless us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes. So if you would, I'm glad you asked, because I was about to forget. So if you would read the section called Authority, which begins on page uh, 16, and go through the section called Almightiness, which goes, uh, that's uh, is page 35. So that section from authority to almightiness. Almightiness is a hard word to say. Uh, but if you would read that for next time, it would be in good shape.